Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch Produce Market and Garden Center, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209. Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. We are looking forward today to visiting with you, hopefully about something other than why is everything dying. Uh, but we'll talk about that, too. In fact, I, I have a, a, quite a few things to say. But uh, in the meantime, uh, write down our number. It's 845-5689 or by email gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, let's see. Well, uh, I guess we'll start with the elephant in the room, and that is uh, why are trees dying and all kinds of related drought-related questions. So we're going to take a few of those here. I'm going to go to the email and pick out a few. Um, the, the, the issue with trees, and, and we've talked about this in the past, but I think it bears repeating, is trees have deep, extensive root systems. And when I say deep, I mean I, I want to qualify that by saying that 90% of a tree's roots are in the top foot of soil, but they have some roots that go deeper, sinker roots, but uh, in general, and I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush saying tree roots are, because there's a lot of different kinds of trees, uh, but in general, your tree roots are in, mostly in the top foot of soil. So uh, when we have our normal little, the lawn struggling, it's getting dry, trees still have a volume of soil they, they can continue to draw from. But what often happens is when we have 100 degree weather, they're pumping a lot of water just to stay alive and, and keep their processes functioning. And so uh, years ago, I, I remember um, a study was done by A&M out in, in Central Texas where they took a peach tree growing basically in a huge pot. And when I say huge pot, I mean, you know, something, um, you know, maybe 10, 15 feet across uh, that was that had a scale on it where they could weigh it. And the change in weight of a peach tree growing in a pot like that is basically due to water loss. And they found that a mature peach tree is pumping about, or can pump, about 40 gallons of water out of its leaves on a hot day. Well, that's a lot of water. And I, I suspect if you have peach trees, you're not going out and putting 40 gallons a day on them. Uh, but it's the soil and the depth of the, the, the spread of the root system, the volume of soil that they can draw from, that keeps our trees going. We don't want to water so often and so shallow that they become dependent on frequent irrigation just to try to stay alive. Uh, a good deep soaking, something to wet the soil about a foot deep, uh, would 
on a, let's say every two weeks even, uh, would be very helpful because that's, that's a lot of soil moisture that they can draw from. And we're not trying to supply everything the tree needs. There is some moisture in the soil even now uh, down deeper, but we're trying to just rescue them. And, and that's the goal. We don't want to waste water and we don't want to make them dependent by watering because a tree builds a root system wherever there's an, a dependable supply of moisture. The roots proliferate there. So uh, if you were to have three or four spots where you only watered your tree, maybe a 10 foot or a five foot wide circle, and then always you were keeping it moist, over time the tree's going to develop a lot of roots there. If you then moved all those watering gadgets to a different spot, it can't just in a day go, okay, I'm going to put my roots over there. It, it, it would go into major stress. I saw this when I was a child. We had uh, water that uh, back in those days you could uh, run gray water right out of the kitchen sink uh, out onto the lawn. And we had a, a large, it was a tree to me, but it's probably just a large shrub that grew luxuriously because it was always getting water uh, through through the dry summer seasons. And when we moved, nobody moved into that spot. and that tree in the first summer died uh, because it just didn't have a root system to support the top that we encouraged it to grow when we took all the water away from where all the roots were. So that isn't something that happens much, of course, today, but the principle holds. And so uh, I'll talk about some other reasons why we don't want to overwater our plants in, in a little bit. But So our goal is just a rescue. Uh, and we often water our lawns too little too often. You know, if you're watering your lawn three times a week, that is either you're keeping the soil oversaturated, which creates problems, or you are uh, uh, putting on such a small amount that you're not encouraging a deep, extensive root system. And those root systems are what gets us through uh, reasonable am amounts of drought. Uh, so you don't count that as, as being enough for your trees just when you're keeping your lawn alive. Uh, you're watering maybe once every week. I've got areas in the shade and uh, areas in the shade where I have not watered in mm, two and a half weeks. And you would think, oh, it, it would be dead. No, you build a good deep root system and there's not the demands of full sun at 100 degrees and it doesn't need as much water. You can drive around town and see yards that are being uh, sparsely irrigated and it's green under the trees uh, because the trees are shading. Uh, that that grass and and making the stress a little bit less. Uh, so in this in the sun, yes, we are having to water. You're probably watering once a week. If you've got a, a well-established grass root system, you may be watering twice a week with a little bit less water each time, of course. But um, twice a week is okay. Uh, it's just you kind of have to gauge it. Do you have sandy soil? Do you have clay soil? How much shade does it get? On and on. Uh, those help you decide exactly, and we just try to give you rules of thumb. So trees are, are collapsing in, in different places around town, and I wrote about this a few weeks ago in the paper, uh, but you can, uh, post oaks are the, are the poster child, I guess, of, of tree issues, uh, and they just seem to have a way of, you've got a clump of four of them, and they're all doing good, and then all of a sudden one, just seemingly overnight, uh, turns brown. It actually takes longer. But uh, why did that one die and the others live? They get the same amount of water. They're growing in the same soil or at least the same location. Uh, so why does one die and the others don't? Well, 
I can't answer that question. I mean, I can give you a whole bunch of principles that maybe combine for the answer, uh, but the bottom line is that tr plants, like people, uh, are kind of unpredictable sometimes when it comes to health. I mean, maybe it's the genetics. You know, each of those trees is, came from an acorn, so genetically they're not identical. Maybe the soil's a little different uh, around one tree or in one area. Maybe the water sprinklers aren't applying water evenly. Maybe the grass may all be green, but some areas may be getting a little more than others. There's just a lot of possibilities. But when they start turning brown, there's very little we can do. We have some trees that can brown out. Uh, typically, it happens in August, but here we are. Uh, and that, that would be uh, like cypress trees, where they turn bronze, they lose their needles, but it's still alive and it bounces back and puts out new growth uh, when things cool off and, and the rain begins to come back again. Now, that's not good for them. Uh, it's a very stressful event. It takes away from their ability to make carbohydrates, but they can survive it. Other trees, not, not so much. So I guess the, the bottom line is trying to prevent stress because once a tree starts down, it is really hard to turn it around. Uh, and in many cases, by the time you see issues, and it may be that you know you're you're seeing leaves on the ground or something else, uh, it's already further progressed than you can turn it around. Uh, that so, if if you have trees, go out and check your soil. You can take a, a flathead type screwdriver uh, and push it a long-handled one, you know, not just a small one, and push it down in the soil, and it'll go through moist soil very easily. And when you hit a dry area, uh, if the if the irrigation isn't watering it very deep, it'll stop like you hit a concrete sidewalk underground. Uh, and that tells you how deep your moisture level is moving from the irrigation you're providing. So in that kind of situation, I would occasionally give it a deeper soaking but just occasionally, like once every two weeks, uh, maybe a little bit deeper soaking than you normally would for your grass. So that, that helps. Uh, post oaks don't like everything we do to them. They grow in the post oak belt, a north-south belt across this region of Texas, goes down to, down to Cuero in that area, and it goes up north of us. And it's kind of a generally a gravelly type of soil, uh, very drought prone, but the post oaks naturally live out there. We bring them, or let's, we don't bring them, we make a yard around them as we build a new house. And now we've got grass over their roots, we've got flower beds, we've got irrigation sprinklers. Uh, who knows, if it was fairly recent, maybe some roots were cut for trenching and other things. And it just leads to a problem where those plants aren't going to be happy. Uh, and the, they're the worst, in my opinion. The post oaks are about the worst about that. Um, so it's it's kind of counterintuitive that a tree that survives so well uh, in the wild here, although they do die in the wild during this kind of heat and drought, um, that it wouldn't be uh, happy and happier in our yard where we're kind of taking care of it, according to what we're thinking. But that's the case, and so there. sometimes there's not a lot we can do. And it often just makes you scratch your head. Uh, I was looking at uh, some post oaks this morning, or a post oak that had died this morning, and every scenario I could come up with for why it died, uh, there were other trees around that weren't affected, you know, other post oaks around that weren't affected. And uh, it just makes you scratch your head. But it, it is what it is, and it's something that we have to deal with. So 
Uh, let me give you the phone number again. I know y'all don't want to hear me drone on about the drought all day, but it's 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. So save your fellow listeners from the drought discussion uh, with a question about something else. Uh, regarding our yards, I know you guys have heard uh, Jennifer Nations on this show and on her own show on this station uh, and read in the paper uh, interviews with, with uh, her and other uh, folks from other water supply system, you know, Wixon Valley and others around. And we're, we're, we're teetering on that edge of having to set up regular um, rules for how we water our lawns uh, as we move from state into stage one, stage two, and so on. Uh, and we want to avoid that. Uh, and it is, we, we say all the time, when you water, give it a good soaking infrequently. So that may mean applying a half inch to an inch of water, an inch for uh, a heavier clay, and a, and a half inch maybe uh, for a sand. And But it's going to have to be more frequent in a sand because the water tends to run straight down. Uh, but um, maybe once or twice a week, twice at the most. And by doing that, you maintain soil that's moist, but is also oxygenated. So think of it this way. Uh, when you wet your soil thoroughly, you wet the soil profile, as it begins to dry out, air moves down into the soil. So um, the analogy that works for me, hopefully this will make sense to you, but you're drinking a soft drink through a straw, and when you take your mouth off the straw, the water or the soft drink goes down in the straw. And what goes in behind it? Air. It pulls in air behind it as it moves down. So in our soil, as it begins to dry out, uh, that openings between the soil particles then get filled with air. So a good soaking, let it dry out pretty well. Another good soaking, that keeps moisture, but it also makes it well aerated. To constantly soak the surface, is 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 creating a waterlogged top that prevents deep uh, movement of oxygen down into the soil. So light frequent waterings, or even for some people it's moderate to heavy frequent waterings, that is just, it's counterproductive for taking care of your lawn. The other thing that happens when we do this, not only are we wasting water and not only is it a time where we are trying to keep our community from having to go into restriction rules, uh, but the other thing is our water has a lot of sodium in it. And sodium, it, it destroys, uh, well, that's probably an uh, excessive word. Sodium causes a clay to kind of seal up and tighten up and not let water in and not let air in as well as it could. Our clays, even though they seem like a heavy clay, they are reasonably good at taking water on down and through them over time. But as we, as we over water, we over apply sodium. So year in and year out, that water is just, the sodium is just getting applied and applied and applied. It makes the pH go up and it uh, prevents uh, the development or it breaks down the development of a good structure uh, in the soil. Uh, you will see yards where it's like a, a black uh, coffee running over the edge of the curb out of the yard down into the street or something. That black coffee, and I was visiting with our soil lab today or yesterday about this, that black coffee is basically organic matter that is being taken out because of the excessive sodium 
and it's now leaching out and running over the side. So two things. Number one, we're destroying the structure. Number two, probably watering too much because now instead of soaking in, it tends to move horizontally and no, it doesn't help to water the street. Street won't grow and turn green. Uh, so the less you water, the less sodium you apply, and the more you maintain a good soil with a reasonable pH and uh, that has reasonable uh, aeration uh, in the soil. So it's, that's just another reason to not overwater. And I realized that some people aren't watering at all, and the lawns are looking pretty tawny, toasty brown uh, or tan. There's a point at which the grass just flat dies. And when we do that, then you're having to bring in new grass. It's quite an expense to do that. We can allow them to get thirsty, and St. Augustine can survive some under moderate stress. Uh, it, there, we don't like to do that to it, but hey, it's where we are right now. Uh, and But if you let it go too far and you kill it, then, then you're ending up replacing it. And so that's the dance that you make out there as you walk through and look at your lawn and see how it's doing. Uh, you know, we, we're not trying to have the lush green that makes us look like, uh, you know, the PGA is going to uh, open up a new, um, a new tournament in our front yard. Uh, but at the same time, we're, we're trying to keep them alive. So I know that's a lot of words, but hopefully I always like to give a little more of a kind of scientific approach to some of these things, uh, just so you kind of think and understand, because uh, our local water uh, over-applied is not a friend of the soil. Uh, so we can get away with it. We have things like gypsum that can help with that, and th there's all kinds of measures we can take to improve on things. Uh, but it's just another reason why overwatering uh, is not good for your property and your plants. Okay, let's see. Uh, tree roots. Tree roots I mentioned are in the top foot of soil primarily. I say 90% as a broad, painting with a broad brush, about 90% of a tree roots are in the top foot of soil. Those roots also reach out far and wide. Uh, they have washed out the roots of pecans to follow the root out to see how far does that go and found them two and a half times the height of the tree out from the trunk. So most people think, well, all the roots are at the drip line, you know, at the, if, if the tree were an umbrella where the water drips. Uh, and that's not true. Tree roots begin, and this is a small feeder root, they begin at the trunk and they go all the way out to the branch spread and a little beyond that. And the further you get out, the less of them there are. So if we can at least take care of the part underneath the canopy of the tree, and if you're able to, a little bit beyond that, uh, you can help that tree. And realize that roots on one side of the tree tend to supply that same side. So think of a, the root as like a straw, and that straw is going up the trunk and out some branch and ending up in a group of leaves. Well. If, if you only water one side, you can get browning and damage on the other side of the tree where it's not getting the water on that part of the yard. So some sort of uniformity uh, is helpful when you do that. Now, with all these things, it's like it gives you a headache. Then how do I, how do I keep up with this and do this all? Well, good deep soaking infrequently for the trees every two weeks is enough if you give it a good deep soaking. Uh, and avoid that excessive amount of water. That's the kind of basic principle. So how do you know when you've watered an inch? Um, well, you can put a rain gauge in the soil. You know, some of them are on stakes and you can put them in the soil. You can take a straight-sided container 
like the old coffee cans or bean cans or a cat food or tuna fish can and set those all around because our, our systems are not that uniform unfortunately uh, and that way you can kind of get the average how long do I have to water in order to catch an inch or in the case of a lawn a half inch to an inch of water and uh, what you'll find in almost all cases is that your soil can't take up an inch of water applied all at once uh, and so we have to turn the water on let it run for however long that can be before it starts to want to run off and then you turn the water off have it sit for let's say 45 minutes no, no, no magic number there you just want it to have time to soak and then the water comes on again and runs another cycle and we call that cycle and soak and if you've got a little clock in your garage, you can set it up to do that on a watering day. Uh, and so whenever it is time to water, you're going to start fairly early, hopefully, if you're going to have to cycle and soak, because you want to be done bef well before 10, hopefully even much earlier than that. Uh, but uh, you go through that cycle and soak, and that gives you the good soaking, because you just can't put that much on at one time without uh, it running off. Uh, you know, in a, in a heavy clay, now this is, this is, uh, varies with like all the roots and organic matter and things like that that are in the soil that affect infiltration. But in a heavy clay, I know uh, the Houston black clays that's common along the Gulf Coast, uh, it, they could take in water about an eighth of an inch an hour. So do you have an irrigation system that can put water out at an eighth of an inch an hour? Well, no. Uh, and so with our lawns and the root channels and, you know, the earthworm, tunnels and organic matter, all that kind of stuff, it's much better than an eighth of an inch an hour. But still, just realize if it's a clay soil, it can only absorb so fast. So uh, another thing to think about. All right. Well, uh, I am, I'm tired of talking about drought. So let's talk about something else. Our number is 845-5689, 845-5689 or by email at gardensuccess at t-a-m-u dot e-d-u gardensuccess at t-a-m-u dot e-d-u and while I'm while I'm thinking about it um, the, we've had a recent visit with Jennifer and uh, she was telling us that with the College Station water system uh, that the watering days for odd house numbers that are recommended it's not a law they're going to come and find you tomorrow but the recommended days which I hope you'll participate in so that we avoid having to go to those higher levels of restriction uh, for odd number houses Wednesday and Saturday for even number of houses Thursday and Sunday the two water days uh, she recommended that we don't water on Monday uh, especially um, uh, there, and I can't remember now the specific reason, but Monday is a day uh, where it's better to just avoid it for the sake of the, the water system recharging and, and, and everything that they have. Uh, the, and uh, don't water between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. That's when evapo evaporation is highest and you basically are squirting drinking water out there in the air that is going to go away and make Bryan College Station more humid and not help your lawn a bit when it's lost like that. That's water you don't get to use. So uh, avoid the warmer parts, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, in order to do that. I said I'm going to quit talking about water in there. I talked about water again. <laughs> okay. Let's see. We had a, uh, let's go to the emails. We had a question from uh, Becky. 
Uh, Becky fertilized back in April with a fertilizer that was said to release over three months, and that would, you know, a slow-release fertilizer. Uh, and so should she fertilize again now and with all that's going on and everything? So uh, slow-release fertilizers are a little more expensive, but they're nice because they gradually release the nutrients. You know, when you put out your fertilizer, the grass doesn't gobble it all up and then just sit there with all that fertilizer in the grass plant uh, providing nutrition for the months to come. Uh, some of that, if it's nitrogen and we get a gully washer rain, gets washed away. Uh, sometimes nitrogen on the surface can volatilize and turn into a gas and drift away. And so we either would like to use a slow release that gradually releases it, or we can use a regular type of fertilizer and split our fertilizer into two applications to, that kind of help spread it out a little bit. But the question about if you, if you fertilize in April, which is the time to fertilize. That's about when we typically mow our lawns the second time. It occurs in early to mid-April. Uh, then the grass in most lawns is not going to need to be fertilized again that year. Uh, if you fertilize, you also have to water. Uh, and when you fertilize and water, you get faster grass growth. And faster grass growth means more mowing. Uh, to keep up with it. We'd like our lawns to be green, but not just, you know, you're running out there with a mower every other day trying to keep them at the good height. Uh, also, when you over-fertilize with nitrogen, it grows top growth at the expense of root growth. And I remember when I was going through uh, getting my degree, uh, seeing the, the images, it, Science has long known uh, of grass grown in normal nitrogen levels, low nitrogen levels, and high nitrogen levels. And when you get up to high nitrogen levels, there are actually less roots than there are on grass grown with normal or even low nitrogen levels, especially normal. Uh, and so what happens when you get a bunch of top growth and now you don't have the root system? Well, if a few grubs are eating a few roots away or you get a little take-all root rot and it's you know, causing some loss of roots, or it just gets hot and dry, uh, that grass is not resilient. So over-fertilizing actually makes your lawn more drought-prone. So I would suggest fertilize in April, ideally at the second mowing, and then don't fertilize again through the year. There are some proponents of fall fertilization in grass, and that would be something we would do here uh, probably about early October, early to mid-October. Uh, th that helps the grass, if it's, especially if it's a little bit hungry, it helps the grass go into winter stronger. Uh, it it you know, stimulates some growth to get some carbohydrate buildup, and uh, it goes into winter stronger, and it comes out of winter stronger uh, from that. But on, in most yards where you're returning the clippings and they are decomposing over time, you're getting a lot of nutrient from that. And um, that it, it's just not necessary to fertilize as much. Uh, and I do recommend returning the clippings when you can. So hopefully that helps. Uh, Becky also had a question about pre-emergence. Uh, when do you apply a pre-emergent for the fall weeds that we have? And she said specifically the road astern. I know we talked about this last fall, but uh, there's the little daisy-like flowers that are kind of white to maybe light lavender uh, that are all in your lawn. That's an aster weed. Uh, we call it road aster. It goes by other names. Uh, and 
those plants are not germinating in the fall. They're already there. In fact, I've been pulling some out of my lawn here and there for a couple of months now uh, because they've gotten large enough to see them. They have a different, almost a blue-green color, kind of a dark grayish blue-green, if you can imagine that. So they sort of set apart from the grass as you're walking through looking. Uh, and if your soil is moist, they have a single taproot going down. You can grab that whole spreading um, weed and pull it right up by hand and get rid of it. Uh, you definitely want to do that before they bloom and set seeds because they will produce a bazillion seeds to make your problem much worse over time. But a fall pre-emergent or even a summer pre-emergent is not going to control that weed. What we have is a group of cool season weeds that germinate in the fall and create our big weed problems that we have in the spring. So among our cool season weeds are clovers, uh, henbit, uh, chickweed, annual bluegrass. Uh, there's a, those cool season weeds are germinating in the fall. As the days cool off, you get some rain, they germinate and they sit there. They're like our beloved blue bonnets. The seeds come up in the fall, they sit there as little rosette plants through the, through the winter, and then in spring, with warming temps and, and day length growing longer, they burst out in a vigorous growth and then set their blooms and set their seeds. That's what blue bonnets do and that's what the fall weeds do. So those kind of weeds we would prevent with a pre-emergent in about the third week of September. And uh, you know, a calendar uh, does not always represent that year. And so we give you these these average dates, but just keep in mind that the weather is not uniform every year, but the third week of September is probably a really good time to get those products down, read the label, apply them as recommended. Usually they need to be incorporated in with irrigation. Uh, in fact, most of them do. Uh, so follow that and, and you can prevent that weed problem that we see in the spring. When the lawn's waking up and the weeds are already going crazy, uh, that is prevented with with pre-emergent in the fall. The best weed control is a dense, healthy lawn. Uh, as, you, as you build lawn density through three practices, mowing, watering, fertilizing, proper mowing, proper watering, proper fertilizing, a dense lawn chokes out the vast majority of its, its weed problems. There are weeds that will exist in a dense lawn, uh, but they are the exception rather than the rule. And so just by getting a good, dense lawn, you control your weed problems. Because remember, wherever the sunlight hits the soil, nature plants a weed. So prevent the sunlight from hitting the soil in your lawn or your garden, and you avoid a lot of the weed issues. Uh, so for the, for the, the annual, uh, or excuse me, for the um, um, road aster that's, a, that's blooming in the, in the fall, uh, the, you would have to have a pre-emergent earlier in the season uh, to control that. And I find that as I'm building lawn density, the only place I have them is where my lawn is shared by a neighbor and neither of us waters that area like we probably should. Uh, that little strip through there has a lot of them uh, because the lawn is thinner there. It's still green and it's acceptable. It's an out-of-the-way place. You don't look at it and so, eh, I'm not going to spend water over there. And so that that's where I have the problem. Uh, so each fall uh, or late summer, I just get out there and make sure the soil's moist so the weeds pull and don't break off and uh, just 
kind of take care of it by hand. And we're making it smaller and smaller over time. Uh, let's see, our phone number, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. You know, a, was it a couple of weeks ago, we had a day where we did like a dozen emails or something, or phone calls or something. It was, it was a really busy day, uh, kind of a record almost. And we may be setting a record today. Phone calls are as about as frequent as rain showers, so, <laughs> so give us a call. If you don't, I'll talk a whole time, but uh, I think the listeners would prefer uh, some other uh, interesting topics. Uh, let's see. I was talking about water. I did want to offer one more thing, and that is if you, if you see leaks, uh, and this would be, uh, you know, leaks that are, that are just wasting water, uh, you can report those uh, to, the, to the city here in College Station at 855-528-4278. And that will help somebody get on the spot and save a whole lot of water. Uh, 855-528-4278. All right, and it looks like we got someone to talk on the phones with here. So I'll just pause a second and we'll go to the phones and talk to Jennifer. Jennifer, Hello. were you, were your ears burning? Uh, I was on the phone with somebody else for. Uh, I just got off the phone um, a couple of minutes ago, but then I heard you saying that you needed somebody to, you needed callers, and I was like, I'll call. <laughs> I bet I you will. Talk about water anyway. Uh, you're the lady of the hour, boy. These weeks, I tell you. Yeah, I yeah. talked. Just so you know, I talked to them about the odd number days, even number days. That mm -hmm. it's not mandatory; it's suggested, but why we need to do it. I talked yeah. a little bit about the. I just used gave the number out for reporting leaks. Good. And then a lot about the principles of why overwatering is not um, not a good idea, uh, even into discussing sodium levels in our soil mm -hmm. and the negative effect that has. And so, anyway, that's that brings you up to speed. If you weren't in listening, right okay, now. good. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, we just. Um, <laughs> funny seeing the seeing and hearing the comments of like what you only want me to water two days a week i can't do that and two days a week is plenty it's fine it is plenty yeah it's uh i i beat a horse to death on why shallow yeah. frequent is bad uh, for trees it's bad for lawns and yeah so yeah the the best phrase i heard about the shallow uh frequent watering is that you create little codependent turf babies <laughs> That was for, not by me. That was from somebody else with AgriLife. Codependent uh, turf babies. Yes. That sounds like Be Dr. Becky Grubbs to me. Yeah. Or, was that uh, I, It might have been her. Or, or Christy Seegers? No, it was something with a B. I'll, I'll look it up in a second okay. here. But, um, well, anyway. Yeah. That's a, that is an awesome analogy, and I guess we'll both have to steal it then. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um and just, you know, the, the primary reason that we have watering systems are, um, let's see, it was, oh, it was Becky Bowling who said it. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, but the primary reason that we have our public water systems are for fire protection and drinking water and health and sanitation. So those are the highest uses. Mm -hmm. So that's why landscape irrigation gets hammered. But mm -hmm. I also understand the benefits of landscapes and vegetable right. gardens and all that. So, yeah, it's it's one, it's helpful for people to um, manage water use uh, well, efficiently year-round. I, I would venture to say that if everybody watered their lawn according to scientifically supported principles, we wouldn't be talking about going into restrictions right now. 
Exactly. And I've seen just on my morning run this morning, I took a couple of pictures and there's rotors that are working okay, but, you know, they're going out of alignment. They're watering Mm -hmm. the sidewalk. There's if you have one little rotor that's going a little bit too far, then you end up with a dry spot in your lawn. And so this is the time to just, you know, when when you are allowed to water, turn it on and watch it like a hawk and Mm -hmm. mark down everything that is watering something that is not green. Yeah, I, I haven't used my automatic system in a couple, I think two weeks, but I'm just going along with a um, a little hose-in sprinkler or even doing some hand-watering, which it's hard to get a good soaking hand-watering. You think you've wet mm-hmm. it well, but you haven't. But just in those dry spots that are starting to appear, because it, it isn't a uniform application as much as we'd like it to be. Right. Yeah, okay. So. All right, well... Um, any other, anything else water-wise that we, we should? Uh... Um, well, I did hear this morning that Wellborn Utility District went into a boil water notice and a yes. stage five water emergency. So there's no water use for them. That doesn't impact city of College Station water customers, but okay. it's, um, you know, it, I, I know it can be confusing for people, but that was, uh, that's the issue that they're in right now. All right. So, okay. Right, good. Thank well, you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Our phone number is 845-5689. Let's go to the phones and talk to Susan. Hello, Susan. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Well, I don't want to talk about drought either. Thank you. (laughs) We're farmers, and this is a really, really tough year. Yeah, no (laughs) kidding. So I would like to hear you talk a little bit um, on subject matter. It's kind of a new hobby of mine is starting seeds indoors. But I have only done this for spring gardens, not for fall gardens. So Mm -hmm. I would like to just kind of know time-wise and what sort of vegetables you suggest starting um, by seed for a fall garden. Now, I typically have a hard time with my soil because I'm not, I'm, (laughs) I water conserve. And so I don't typically water my spring garden up to a fall garden so in other words i'm dealing with concrete almost mm-hmm. i feel like so i'm thinking if i started my seeds indoors and what time mm-hmm. and maybe once it starts getting you know later and when i can put them out when i should yes. start them just whatever you um, okay. i'd like to hear you talk on that okay and i'll i'll just listen in okay uh I'll, i think i got all those points out let's see how many of them i can cover here Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. All right. So, Bye-bye. So first of all, uh, we have a, at the Extension Office, we have a vegetable garden planting calendar. It's a chart, actually. And you've got all the vegetables, you know, in ro- uh, rows across the left side of the page and all the uh, uh, months across the top. And it's all a checkerboard of when to plant what. Uh, you, we have it on a website, but the website is having some issues right now. So you can call the Extension Office and we can email you a PDF copy of it, or you can drop by and pick one up. Uh, but that tells you exactly when you want to plant everything. So then you can back up from the planting dates, and that tells you when you would want to start your seedlings. Uh, for summer time, preparing for the fall garden, uh, I usually will start the seedlings uh, under normal weather. I'll start them maybe outside, but under the shade of a tree, where it's bright but not full sun. 
and as they grow then begin to give them more and more sun until it's time to put them out in the garden. You can start them inside it's just unless you've got some good lights uh, that uh, they're growing under they end up spindly and it just it, it just never amounts to a really good seedling uh, and so I, I, I generally don't do that. In the winter time we have to start them indoors because it's freezing outside and, and they can't take that. We're growing tomatoes or peppers and you know, they can't take January outside. So uh, in going into fall, uh, July and August, or mid-July and August, are, are times when we plant a few of our warm season vegetables. If you want to grow squash or green beans, uh, let's see what else in the fall typically. Well, tomatoes or peppers could be planted. Uh, squash, green beans, cucumbers would be another example. Those are not going to tolerate cold weather, so we have to start them soon enough in order for them to grow enough to set a crop before cool weather slows them down to a crawl and then eventually kills them. Uh, and so that that is done in hot, hot weather, unfortunately. We put shade out usually over them to help them establish, but that would be that. Our cool season garden begins in September. Uh, we're setting out broccoli, we're setting out cauliflower, cabbage, kohlrabi, kale, all those kinds of things. Uh, and then as we get into October, we're looking at lettuce and maybe some spinach by that time, uh, too. Uh, but it's all on the chart, and so rather than name them all, I, I would just recommend you do that. So uh, some things like peppers and tomatoes, they're going to take about six weeks, maybe more, uh, to grow a decent transplant. Other things like uh, cucumbers and squash, uh, three or four weeks, you should have something that's ready to go out. In fact, they don't like to be kept too long in that transplant uh, cell. So you just back up your time, say, I want to plant these on such and such date, and then back it up and that tells you when to get them started. Just remember they need light and they can take some heat. I know this 100 degrees is ridiculous but normally in a shady cooler spot uh, around the house uh, you ought to be able to get them started. I start a lot of mine uh, on the on the uh, east side where there's a large eaves uh, and it gets a little bit of morning sun but then has bright light and then gradually move them out. So I hope that hope that kind of helps answer the, that question a little bit. I uh, had a question uh, come in on email uh, from from Sherry. Uh, Sherry had some uh, blossom end rot on her tomatoes, and she added some eggshells to the soil, ground up, and now the the tops are getting soft and kind of and I think probably rotting if if, if they're getting soft on the top. Maybe different than the blossom end rot type, but they're 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 rotting. So. Blossom end rot is caused by a lack of calcium to the fruit, and it's usually in our area not due to a lack of calcium in the soil. It's due to the water flow fluctuating widely in the plant, and the calcium doesn't make it to the end. Uh, so I don't think that I, generally, I don't recommend eggshells as a great solution. There is nothing wrong with putting ground up eggshells. The finer you grind them, the better in your soil if you feel like calcium is needed. but that wouldn't necessarily fix blossom end rot if blossom end rot was being caused by fluctuating soil moisture conditions or a limited root system which is often the case early in the spring when we first plant our tomatoes. Uh, so um, th the, um, the, the tops being soft and rotten, with the weather we're having now, if the sunlight is hitting the tomato and it would hit it on the top primarily, right, uh, then it can actually sunburn the, the, the tissues there and cause a, a softness and a decay to occur there. 
Uh, there may be some other diseases that you're seeing that are causing that decay. Uh, sometimes when water collects around the stem end, uh, you know how the tomato kind of starts low around the stem and then it goes up and out and around? Uh, it kind of holds water there and you can get some, some decay due to that, uh, uh, we'll call it standing water around that area. Uh, I don't think that's what you're seeing. I'd need to see a, a photo of it to be sure, but I think that's... Uh, that's probably what's going on uh, with those with those tomatoes, Sherry. And congratulations on having tomatoes uh, at this time of year. That's that's an accomplishment. So you must be doing a lot right. Well, let's go to the phones now, and and we're going to talk to John. Hello, John. Good morning. Uh, uh, Mary's got a, a healthy piece of ginger root, and she wants to know how to prepare it to try to grow ginger. You can grow ginger here. Uh, what you do is you get a, a very highly organic soil mix. Uh, I would, you, I have started ginger in pots before using a potting soil or something, uh, but you could also plant it directly out in the bed after you mix several inches of compost very deeply into that bed to create a wonderful little soil mix. Uh, and then you just set the rhizomes just barely below the surface. Uh, ginger is, those rhizomes are, are right near the surface. And so, they, in fact, they kind of move up to the surface. So get them under the surface a little bit. Uh, I would mulch over them, uh, and then I would water them and keep them moderately moist all the time. The area needs to drain well, not, not be a stagnant uh, swamp. Uh, but uh, it, it, if you keep them moist, they will sprout. They love warm temperatures. Our temperatures are fine with ginger. In fact, I got some in pots that I ignored. Uh, that I looked the other day, they're little four-inch pots, and I've ignored them for months, and those little suckers are sprouting out. Uh, so I'm, I'm becoming more and more impressed with uh, the edible ginger and its growth here. Uh, but anyway, keep them moist. I would throw a mulch over the surface just to keep the weeds down, prevent crusting and erosion, and ginger sends a shoot straight up, and it'll punch through your mulch with no problem. But this, Skip, this is a, you know, it's a chunk of root. It's, I mean, it's a solid piece of Yes. Root that's probably six inches long and right. two or three inches. You're, t you're talking about what you buy in the store, right? Right. Okay. Right. So that, that actually is a rhizome, and the roots come off of that. Um, and that rhizome has little knobs, and there's typically a shoot bud at the end of those knobs or on the side of the knob. Uh, and if you look at it, you can kind of see them. When it's all brown and dried in the store, it's, they're not as evident as uh, when it begins to have new growth on it. Uh, but you plant that whole thing and just put it in the ground, cover it with an inch of soil, mulch it well, and keep it moist. And it's going to have a sprout coming out at some point in time, depending on how how um, moist it was, you know, in, in the store, the condition of it in the store. Okay, but you don't, you don't cut these knobs off and individually plant them. You just plant this whole big piece? You know, you can, but since you guys are, are getting it going, I would not do much cutting. I would just, you know, plant the piece. Okay. You're going to get a bunch of shoots, and the rhizomes are going to grow out from those shoots in different directions. And at the end of the season, you dig up your clump, and then you can divide it up and get it ready for resetting outside when the weather warms up again next spring. Ah, uh, okay. I got you. Okay. 
Yeah, I understand now. Okay, thanks. All right, I'm going to notify Hawaii that y'all are about to take over the ginger market, and they better be ready. All right. All right. Thank you, John. Our phone number is 845-5689, or by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, Amy asks, uh, where and how, do, basically the question is, where and how do you water a large post oak? Uh, I think I talked about that primarily earlier, but um, you want to water it primarily under the branch spread of the tree and maybe a little beyond that. You want to do it with a good soaking, but very infrequently. Do not keep that soil wet. Don't water little squirts all the time. Uh, that post oak is living natively out in a gravelly, drought-prone soil. And uh, I know it's frustrating to go, well, if they can take that when I water my lawn, why are they not even happier? Well, I don't know. We're going to have to someday get a post oak to confess all the reasons why they die. Uh, but in, in general, avoid that overwatering because they're not going to be fond of that, but a good soaking. Uh, and so uh, uh, you might use the screwdriver test, check your soil, see how moist it is. And it, it, you ought to be able to push that screwdriver I, we'd love to be able to push it about eight to ten inches down into the soil, uh, at least, and and uh, uh, that's probably not going to be the case right now. Scott emailed and and asked about watering times on a well. So he's on well water, not on a um, public water supply. And so, uh, how does he water? Well, the, everything we've been saying, Scott, about you know deep and infrequent for lawns at most twice a week, and I would contend that once a week is enough on, on a good soaking on a lawn. Uh, that's ideal. That way you get the roots their moisture without causing other problems because of the water schedule. Uh, so that that would still be the best for that. Uh, I think Scott, uh, I don't know if it's the same Scott, went to down, down to the South Texas Botanical Garden in Corpus. Uh, Botanical Garden in Corpus is a wonderful uh, little visit. I mean, it, now it's not gonna, it's not gonna rival, you know, botanical gardens in, in the big cities around Texas, but it has some unusual things. He took a picture of something, uh, and uh, big green leaves and, and clusters of orange-red flowers, and that is a clerodendrum. There are several clerodendrums that we can grow here. That one is Clerodendrum paniculatum. Uh, so there, there are different, uh, you know, kind of common names. One that's sometimes used is pagoda flower, uh, but that's what that is. It is a very tropical type plant, um, but it, uh, yeah, that's what you sent the picture of. Uh, let's see. I want to talk about uh, some things going on around the community and also make a correction. Um, the, the Saturday, the 23rd, of July, the Brazos Valley Museum of Natural History is presenting its annual Wish Upon a Butterfly event. It is 9.30 a.m. to noon, 9.30 a.m. to noon, and uh, that is at 3232 Briarcrest Drive. The event will include a butterfly release, a butterfly release uh, to honor someone. So you can purchase a butterfly to release. Uh, they also are going to have uh, you the the uh, 
registration fee getting in it costs twenty dollars for a ticket to get in but you get to see the whole museum first of all and then you get to your, you and the kids get to take part in uh, looking at an observation beehive uh, the butterfly displays they'll have there'll be live music and refreshments and activities and it, by the way uh, twenty dollars also gets you into the air conditioning that alone is worth the twenty bucks uh, guests who dress up as a caterpillar or butterfly receive a gift uh, and so uh, that is something you may want to uh, do. So I think last week I inferred that if you showed up in a costume, you got him for free. I was trying to make sense of, a, of some press notes that I took, uh, but that's not the truth. You you show up in a costume, you you are actually only offer uh, the special prize, twenty dollars to get in. Well worth it. Saturday, June 23rd. It's a good thing to do with the kids uh, from 9.30 a.m. to noon out at Briarcr uh, 3232 Briarcrest Drive. Okay, but uh, some other things going on around. Most of our, our dates are done here, so we're going to we're going to leave it at that uh, for the activities uh, going on around town. Out in the garden right now, we talked about that chart. Uh, the uh, chart in the garden. Uh, we're in July, and so this is a time when we would plant um, cucumbers uh, from seed, uh, eggplant. You can also start your cucumbers as transplants. Uh, we're kind of hitting the July is the end of the eggplant, the best eggplant planting season if you want a fall crop. Uh, Mid-July is about the time we stop planting okra, but you can plant it all the way through the month. Uh, especially if you have one of the more recommended, faster varieties of okra. You can still get in some southern peas, but don't delay much longer. It's it's time to get those in. Pepper transplants can go in now. Uh, as we get to toward the, the uh, end of July and into early August, that would be a time when we plant some of our summer squashes. And by the way, the, the cucumber season goes on into August as well. Tomato plants, uh, last half of July is a great time to get those tomatoes in. Uh, you want varieties that don't take forever. So don't plant a Brandywine tomato, uh, let's say at the end of July or early August. It just isn't going to have time to produce grapefruit crop uh, before cold weather arrives, but you could. All the summer greens, Malabar greens, amaranth greens, Molokia, for those of you who, who love Molokia, the, all the summer greens can be planted throughout the month of July and of, even on into uh, August. All good, good things to be doing out there in the garden. And if you don't have a garden, uh, well, you can garden in containers. So I would I would recommend that, that you do that. Uh, let's see, we have a, a question uh, from Susan. Um, the, the question was, uh, what's my opinion about not watering the grass anymore and letting it go to sleep? Is it advisable? They've got a, a lawn that's kind of struggling. Where there's shade, it's growing in green. Otherwise, it's brown and not growing, of course. Uh, and a lot of uh, neighbors don't have the irrigation system. So what about letting your grass go to sleep? I'm I'm glad you asked that. We've had several really good questions today. Uh, so here's the here's the fast version. Um, St. Augustine grass is only has above ground runners. Okay, it stolons technically. Uh, it doesn't have underground rhizomes. When that runner dries up and dies, the grass is dead. Bermuda grass and most for the most part zoysias have both above ground runners or stolons and underground rhizomes. So if the top 
dead brown, typically the rhizome is going to maintain some moisture and to some degree have the, the drought resilience. It can be so dry for so long that, that it even starts to kill out some of those things. But they're a little more uh, drought resistant. Uh, and I don't want to suggest that you don't have to water zoysia. So the, the grass really isn't sleeping. It's just being stressed to death by the heat. And it, it, some grasses have a way of surviving that dieback and coming back, not St. Augustine. Uh, that that doesn't have that. St. Augustine is a great grass for shady areas because you don't need to water much at all in the shade uh, and it can grow in shade better than the other grasses can. Uh, so that that would be the, the quick answer, Susan. Uh, let's see, the um, uh, I'm gonna have to answer this one offline because we're kind of running out of time today. So uh, I do want to mention a couple of things. Um, the the activities uh, the uh, at the extension office we still have programs going on uh, on in different areas our master gardeners still have programs going on uh, they'll be coming back with the monthly meetings again soon for the fall and you definitely want to sign up to receive notices for that kind of thing you can go to the website master gardener it's uh, brazosmg.org uh, or com but um, Right now it's it's broken down, so just write it down, and we, we're trying to get that thing fixed. Uh, but uh, we'll get it going, and there'll be an about town uh, announcements on there for those. We are also about to start the Master Gardener course. If you're interested in being a Master Gardener volunteer, and this is a training that comes with the obligation of volunteer time, uh, we will be uh, having a couple of information sessions, one uh, toward the end of July and another one uh, that is in early August. And you need to attend one of those to find out the details of what you would be getting into. And we will have applications at those events. If you will call the AgriLife Extension Office and ask to speak to Janice, she can get you uh, signed up for one of those sessions. One of them's at noon and one of them's at 5.30 in the evening. Uh, and uh, so we're trying to give everybody a chance to come and check it out. But if you'd like to, to be a Master Gardener, that is an opportunity. It's a very extensive course, uh, but it is a course for people who don't want to just learn, but want to take what they learn and help Extension reach more people. You got one Horde agent in Brazos County, and we have a whole lot of Master Gardener volunteers that are in a thousand places at once. Uh, and it's a wonderful program for folks that want to serve their neighbors with what they learn. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley. Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com.
Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch Produce Market and Garden Center, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209.